0: If you would, take your Bibles with me this morning and open to the book of Psalms, and specifically Psalm 11, the 11th Psalm. So last week, we finished our study through the book of 2 Corinthians, and uh, you may remember on the sermon card, the blue card on the foyer, which if you you don't have one of these, you can pick one up. It gives the sermon text that will be preached every week. You may remember Tom a while back as he preached, he took a couple of Psalms, Psalm 46 followed by Psalm 47. And so I just thought when I finished my series through St. Corinthians, I would just pick up that series. And so this is now uh, the third uh, series of selected psalms. We call them selected psalms because there's not necessarily any rhyme or reason to the psalms we're looking at except that we've just selected these psalms to preach. And then uh, when it comes back to Tom again, you'll see Tom will pick up Psalm 48 in this series. Over the next uh, several weeks, we'll be looking at some selected psalms. And this morning, it's Psalm 11 which if you have one of the Red Bibles, is on page 452. And if you're able, I want to invite you one more time to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Psalm 11, to the choirmaster master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain"? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright and heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in this holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked. the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Would you remain standing as we pray once more? Father, we ask now for Your blessing on the preaching of Your Word. I have no doubt, Father, that many of us whose position in life may not be what we anticipated or are finding struggles this morning need this psalm. And Father, there can be a great temptation when we gather like this for for the words to come and hit us and kind of roll off our backs or, or not penetrate our hearts. And the evil one is active, trying to pluck away seeds. So we pray this morning that you would allow your word to deeply root in our hearts and produce the fruit of obedience in our lives so that we, like David in this psalm, might find ourselves walking in enduring faith. This is what we pray for, and we ask for it by the power of Your Spirit, by Your grace, and in the name of Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most enlightening texts in the Bible comes in Revelation 6. You may remember the scene if you're familiar with those opening chapters of the book of Revelation. The Lord has given John this heavenly vision in chapter 4 of God reigning on the throne. In chapter 5 then, there's a scroll with seven seals, and there's no one who is worthy to open that scroll. And so John begins to weep until someone says, Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And John, John turns as he hears that, and he sees a lamb standing as if it had been slain. And all of a sudden, all of heaven breaks out into worship because finally here is one who is worthy to take the scroll and, and open its seals. And when chapter 6 then begins, the lamb sure enough takes the scroll and begins opening the seals one by one. As he opens each of those seals, which, which e- with each of their openings, John either sees something or hear something taking place. And among the opening of those seals, it's specifically the fifth seal that is fascinating to me. Because this captivating scene unfolds with the opening of the fifth seal, where John now sees the souls of the martyrs before the altar in heaven, before the throne of God. And they are there, these individuals who have persevered in obedience, who have endured who have walked faithfully and have obeyed to the point of death. These individuals who have a heavenly vantage point now. And so what are they saying? What are they asking? What are they pleading with the Lord to do? According to Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, John sees, quote, the altar of the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne, saying to the Lord, in verse 10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. John goes on to say they were given a white robe, told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants, the brothers and sisters, were to be complete, those who were to be killed for the faith, just as they themselves had. What I find so captivating, so fascinating about that exchange is that these individuals who have been martyred for the faith, who have, who have endured all the way to the point of being obedient to the point of death, with their heavenly vantage point, aren't there now crying out for God to be more merciful, or to be more patient, or to show more grace. Or are they're actually crying out for us to God, for God to hurry up and bring vengeance. You see, what Revelation 6 confirms to us is that because we have a, a very limited, very finite perspective on the world around us, what we're missing by our limited perspective isn't that the world is a better place than we think it is. By our limited perspective, we are being shielded from the viewpoint of those who are in heaven, shielded from the multitude of rebellion and violence and debauchery that fills this planet. No wonder in Second Corinthians four, Paul can refer to this, the devil as the god of this world, or in Ephesians five sixteen, speaking of these days, calling the days evil. But for believers throughout most of history and in many spots in the world today, this would not at all be surprising. We read in the early chapters of the book of Acts, intense persecution breaks out against the church. Again, that continues, and when you read the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 2, the Lord is going to tell the church, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. As I've mentioned, in some pocket of the world ever since then, believers have been suffering persecution even to the point of death. But we don't have to think about the other side of the world because my guess is for many of you right now, you feel like your life has been wrecked because of sin. To tell you that we have the enemies of Satan and sin and death is no surprise to you. Perhaps you've been the victim of great sin against you You feel like there is darkness all around you. Maybe you feel this morning that you don't know how to pick up your leg and take the next step, let alone persevere in obeying Jesus Christ to the end. You don't feel like you can make it to the end. If someone were to describe your surroundings, you feel like they should say something like, all of life is crumbling around you. And you wonder, how do I persevere? How can I endure? How can I press on? Well, the good news for you is that that's what Psalm 11 is about. We don't know, as we get to Psalm 11, we don't know the setting of the psalm. Sometimes the superscript, which in this one is just to the choirmaster of David, sometimes it gives us a specific detail. It was at this moment in David's life or at that moment in David's life. In Psalm 11, we simply know that the author was David, but we don't know the setting. We can tell that, that he was under attack there's made reference in verse three or verse two rather to the wicked bending the bow and fitting their arrows to the string, ready to shoot in the dark at the heart of the upright. this could have been a multitude of moments in David's life. We know at one point before he became king, Saul sought to take his life from him. We know that after he became king, his own son Absalom rebelled against him and wanted to see him removed from the throne. It could have been any of those moments or another. What we do know is that David in this psalm was under attack, and David, it seemed that, at least to those around him, was in a place where life was crumbling. When you read Psalm 11, David begins with a triumphant note. The psalm opens In the Lord I take refuge. Whatever situation David was in, David was defiant. I am taking refuge in the Lord. And yet, he expresses surprise. Surprised because some individuals are saying to him, David, you need to flee. You need to run. You do not need to stand steadfast. You need to get out of here and get to the mountains. We see that in verses one through three. David defiantly, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, he's asking individuals, How can you say to me? And now he's going to quote them, Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked have been the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? When we read those words, I think there are a few details we need to work out. One, those are David's friends. In other words, David is not responding to his enemies saying to him, Get out of here, David. He's responding to his friends. The reason we know that they are David's friends, the reason we know that they are allies to David, is because they refer to those who are against David as the wicked, verse 2. And they refer to David, in verse 2 and verse 3, as the righteous. It's generally not true that if people attack you, they refer to themselves as the wicked and you as the righteous. So, so these are David's Friends. Also, there can be different translations in the quote at different places. I think the ESV is basically right. I think the text reads correctly that the quote goes from flee like a bird to your mountain all the way down to if the righteous are destroyed, what can the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? In other words, David is not asking these questions of himself. This entire quotation are coming from David's friends. So the setting then is one in which generally we know David is under attack. It may be that his enemies are literally coming to violently attack him, that literally David's friends can point and say, look, they're fitting the arrows for their bow, they've drawn, they're ready to shoot at you, get to the mountains and flee. Or it may be that David is not literally being physically attacked, but he is being attacked uh, verbally, he's being attacked and individuals are, are coming against him. And so that David's friends are saying, David, now is the time to run. Now is the time to get away. And yet I mentioned, David is defiant, opening the psalm saying, no, 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 no! it's in the Lord I take refuge. And he is even flabbergasted that how they can say, he asked the question, how can you say to my soul, flee to the mountains? Again, their reasoning would be obvious because look at the men with their arrows. Look at them with their bows. They're ready to attack you. But what you then have in Psalm 11 is David at a place where everyone around him says it would be easier for you to run and David is standing. Why? What is it that David knows that makes him so confident? That's what we're going to see in the Psalm. And I'm going to guess that for many of us, the answer to this question isn't going to be helpful merely at the level of satisfying our curiosity. In other words, perhaps at this point, all of us are going, that's a good question. Why is David so confident when standing in the midst of his enemies attacking so that he will stand instead of flee? But there may be many of us for whom a question like this isn't one to satisfy our curiosity because you're asking that same question yourself right now about your life. Maybe you're in a difficult marriage, and even your Christian friends are saying to you, I'm watching you suffer so much. Get out of that marriage. Flee. Or maybe you're single. You've attempted to walk in holiness, and now someone's coming along, and they're paying attention to you. But that individual has no claim to know Christ at all. And you know, Scripture says that if we are to marry, we are to marry only in the Lord. And yet, again, even those who love you, those who profess Christ as Lord are saying to you today, I'm tired of seeing you so lonely. Flee. Flee from the Lord to this outlet. Or maybe you're in a place where you just know so much pain, that you've convinced yourself that it's appropriate to flee to the abuse of alcohol or the like to try to numb your pain, or you find yourself so uh, insecure and struggling at your plot in life that you've convinced yourself again and again and again, I've pressed on, I've been obedient, I deserve a good sin. And you need the answer that Psalm 11 provides because you, like David, need to stand firm. And you need to obey when it feels like life around you is crumbling And perhaps even those who know you and love you are telling you to flee. So what is it that David knew? What is it that David called to mind and remembered so that he could confidently stand and endure an obedient faith? Three things. First one is this. The Lord rules and reigns. The Lord rules and reigns. In verse four, after David, in the first three verses, has defiantly said, "How can you say this to me? The Lord is my refuge." Now begins to tell his friends why. Why it is he feels confident to, to seek the Lord and to not flee." He says in verse four, "The Lord is in His te- holy temple. The Lord's throne is in the heaven. Now is in heaven." Now we could read that. The Lord is in His holy temple, the Lord's throne in heaven, and we could read that and think that what David is saying is that the Lord is distant, as if He is, as if he is away. But, but that's not what he's saying when he's, when he's making reference to heaven. He's not, he's not communicating, the Lord is distant from me. What he's communicating is that the Lord is exalted, and the Lord is ruling, and the Lord is reigning. If you look through the rest of the Psalter, you'll find that this consistently comes up, this this reference to the Lord reigning from the heavens. So, for example, in the very opening of the book of the Psalms, by the time you get to Psalm 2, the psalmist is asking, why do the nations rage? Why do wicked men plot evil things against the Lord? And his response is, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Specifically, when the psalmist says, he who sits in the heavens laughs, it's because he's exalting God, the God who sits in the heavens, the God who is above all this, the God who reigns over all and is not threatened by the puny threats of the nations, reigns over them. Similarly, in Psalm 115, the psalmist says, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Again, the idea of all of these individuals against God, and yet God is exalted above them, not hindered by them. His plans are not thwarted in any way He does all that He pleases. So, so when the psalmist, when David here makes reference to God being in the heavens, it's to point out that He is exalted, that He rules and reigns over all. Likewise, the same is true then with this reference to His throne in heaven. In Psalm 47, verse 8, the psalmist writes, God reigns over the nations, God sits on His holy throne. Or Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. David's first answer to why he does not feel he needs to flee but can stand firm, trusting in the Lord, seeing God as His Refuge is because he knows that God rules and reigns over all things. And the same is true for you and me. No matter what transpires in our lives, this reality is true. God rules and reigns. This means that even on our worst day, even in our worst moment, even when we find ourselves suffering to the point that we feel like we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death or that we can like Paul at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, remember when he says, we were so pressed that I despaired of life itself. Even in those moments, Though it might feel like darkness is all around and the foundations of the earth are crumbling, our interpretation of those moments aren't that someone or something has gotten the upper hand on God. Rather, in those moments we can know that God rules and reigns. This doesn't mean that we'll always understand His, His, His mysterious hand of providence, why difficulties and struggles He allows into our lives and allows us to bear the weight of great tragedies. But in none of those moments is it the right answer to think that God's not ruling and reigning. And one reason we know that, besides the witness of the text that's all over the place saying this, is because we can take the worst moment in history from one perspective. The greatest sin in human history is when wicked men crucify the Lord of glory. And yet, do you remember what Jesus says to Pilate? When Pilate in John chapter 19 says to Jesus, do you not realize that I have authority to release you or to hand you over to be crucified? And Jesus' response is, in John nineteen eleven: you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. In that moment, Jesus is noting to Pilate, my Father rules and reigns. Now, these realities that David's going to develop build on one another, but that's where he begins. The reason he has confident hope when it feels like darkness is all around him, when the earth itself is crumbling, is because he knows God's rules and reigns. Now, you could take that, though, and you could think, sure, God rules and reigns, but is he somehow aloof? Is Is he really paying attention? And that brings us to our second reality that David calls to mind. The Lord sees and takes note of all. The Lord sees and takes note of all. In the second half of verse 4, David writes, His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. Now, clearly when the psalmist writes like this, using the language that we would uh, use for us, for people, for humanity, things like eyes and eyelids to describe God. Not because God literally has eyes and eyelids. We know from the rest of Scripture He is spirit. He has no body. He is the invisible God, the New Testament will tell us. But the reason that David uses his imagery of, of eyes and eyelids is because he wants to speak to us in language that we might understand. What David wants us to know by saying his eyes see and his eyelids test the children of man, is I think what he's doing is he's speaking a reality. First of all, at the beginning of verse, first half of that, the second part of verse 4, his eyes see. He sees what's going on, but it's then as if he ratchets it up a bit. When he he says his eyes and then, then he follows it up with his eyelids, the imagery I think would be one of something like someone's peering or someone squinting, so that if I were, if we're trying to, to look at you, one of you way in the back, and that you, you saw me squinting, you, you might say, I see more of his eyelids than his eyes. That's the reality here, is if God is peering, He is looking, He is seeing, to, to test. The word can be translated test or examine, but God is, is, is examining, he is, he is seeing what is in the very hearts, what's going on in the very details of situations. See, what David says here is it's not just that God rules and reigns, it's also that God sees. He's taking note of everything that's going on in our lives. It can feel when we go through difficult situations that God has abandoned us or doesn't notice or doesn't care, and the reality could not be further from the truth. That's what David is saying here. God is not ignorant of what I'm going through. God is not ignorant of my enemy's attacks. God's not ignorant of what they say. He's not ignorant of their plans. He's not ignorant of their schemes. He sees. He's peering in. He's taking note. This is the same reality that when you get to the New Testament, Jesus is picking up on when he reminds us. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? That is, I am picking the most inconsequential creature a creature that is so valueless, the, the sparrow, that you, you even have to sell two of them for the penny. And yet, he says, not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. Outside of God's meticulous providence and care and oversight, not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from him. And then Jesus reminds us we're of much more value to God than the sparrow. He demonstrates it by saying, even the numbers of the hairs on your head are numbered. Which I think every time I've heard that in a sermon, or even said it in a sermon, it's followed by a joke, right? A joke that is easier for some of us to have our hairs numbered than others. But let's not go to the joke too quickly. Let's feel the way to this point. God is so meticulously. Crafting and overseeing every detail of your life, that something as inconsequential as the number of hairs on your head, that doesn't matter. But God knows it. He's numbered them. You see, what Jesus is reminding us there is that God is taking note of every detail of our lives. He knows us better than we know ourselves. That's the reality that David was resting in. His eyes see. His eyelids examine the children of man. His eyelids test the children of man. His eyelids knows what's going on in our lives. What this means is that for you and me, is that God, God knows everything that's in you and that has happened to you and everything that's taken place in your life. He knows what you've been through. He knows what's been done to you. He knows your insecurities. He knows your fears. He knows your doubts. He knows everything that's going on in your heart. He knows how hard it's been for you in the battle against infertility with every passing month. He knows how difficult your hard marriage is. He knows how hard it is for you to be alone and desperately wish someone would come along, call you to walk alongside of them. He knows that you've been hurt so much that your heart is wanting to protect itself from ever feeling again because you just don't know if you take it. God knows the details of your life so well that He could write your life story better than you could. He knows it from the inside and out. This is what David is saying. It's not just that God rules and reigns. It's that His I see, He knows, He is with us. Now, this doesn't mean that he will keep us from suffering. Far from it. In his infinite wisdom, he will take us through paths of excruciating, difficult realities, realities that will cause us to shed tears. And yet, even then, in Psalm 56, David reminds us that he then bottles those tears. He takes the, the anxieties in our life that calls us restless nights and he writes them down in his book when all of our days he has already written in his book. This is David's point. His eyes see. The Lord sees and takes note of all. Now again, following these, we might say, okay, it's not just that God rules and reigns, but is aloof or doesn't care. No, no, the God who rules and reigns sees and takes note. He knows the details of going on in our lives. But then we could go wrong there, as if God is, is, is simply one who is, who is able, as if God, the Son, we know he, can, he has compassion, He can empathize with us, sympathize with us in our weaknesses. So we might then say, well, then is God one who rules and reigns, who sees what's going on, but now is powerless. And the answer, again, is certainly not, which brings us to our third reality, what David calls to mind, the Lord will exercise justice. The Lord will exercise justice. In verse 5, after saying in verse 4, his eyelids test the children of man, his eyelids examine the children of man, he knows the details, he knows what's going on in our heart, he's pulling out and exposing what is in us. In verse 5, he reminds us of that truth again. The Lord tests the righteous. The Lord examines the righteous. The Lord, throughout how He's working in our lives, knows and exposes what's in the heart of the righteous. But notice how he then pivots and what he says about the wicked. But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. David then says, Let him rain coals on the wicked, And then he notes that indeed will be their suffering. Fire and suffering and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. In other words, what David is saying is God is going to execute justice against his enemies. A big deal when David writes Psalm 11 and David's friends are saying, you have enemies, the enemies of God are your enemies. And David's reminding them, but God rules and reigns. He sees and takes note of all, and God will execute justice. He will pour out His wrath on His enemies, their their cup. What they will drink on the final day will be the cup of the wine of the wrath of God measured out in full. The words David uses is fire and sulfur and a scorching wind. They will drink. And notice, notice that God's judgment is personal. This happens, it seems like, every generation. Someone begins to interpret the judgment of God as if it's just a mechanistic thing. That God's wrath is shown simply in the fact that uh, someone gets drunk and has a car accident loses their arm. Well, well, that's the wrath of God. Well, Well, yes, it is in a certain sense. God's judgment is being shown in this age. It's being shown as He gives individuals over to their sin. Yes, God's judgment is being shown. But that's not the only way God's judgment is shown. On the final day, we are told that we will be thrown into a lake of fire. In fact, Hebrews 10.31 reminds us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God will be the one who will personally and furiously pour out His merciless wrath. Which is why the psalmist uses the language of his soul hates the wicked. Fourteen times in the first 50 psalms, we read that God hates the wicked Judgment is terrible. God's answer to those martyrs before the, soul, before the throne of God above is not, though you're asking for vengeance, I will not bring it. His answer is, vengeance is coming. Just wait a little longer. But it is sure, and it is certainly coming. God will judge His enemies in His wrath and merciless fury. And yet, there's another side to this justice as well. David continues in verse 7, for the Lord is righteous, He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold His face. Here is the exact opposite. If in verses 5 and 6 we are told that the wicked will be the objects of His Personal, furious, merciless judgment, drinking down the cup of his wine, of his wrath, of fire and sulfur. Now we are told that the righteous will see His face. We, the reference to, to seeing God's face in the Bible is to be the, the objects of His blessing. It's why when we quote the benediction from number 6, we, we talk about the Lord turning His face to shine on us, a note of blessing, this reality that, that we will see God's face means we will dwell with Him forever. We will be the objects of His blessing. We will be blessed by Him. Those of us... Who know we do not deserve it if our faith is in Jesus, who's lived and died and was raised, and we have been credited with the righteousness of God by righteousness of Christ by faith, we will see his face and live. Now what's interesting, I think, is that verses five through seven, although I think all three of those verses make this one point, God will exercise justice justice toward His enemies and that they will bear His wrath, and justice toward those whom He has redeemed because He will save them, which is again an act of justice because Christ has died for us, been raised for us. As much as we say rightly so, we are the objects of His mercy because Christ has lived and died and been raised and we are united with Him by faith so that what's true of Him is true of us. It would be unjust for God to punish one who is united with Christ, which is why John can tell us that as we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I think sometimes when we see verses 5-7, through this idea of God judging the wicked and and saving the righteous, we see as, as if they are greatly differentiated realities. Realities that must be separated in such a way as if God is acting this way here and that way there. But when you read through the Bible... This reality of God saving His people as He judges His enemies are consistently brought together. Think of the first promise God makes to Adam and Eve to save them, Genesis 3.15. We talk about it as the first gospel, the first reference to God is going to redeem you. Do you remember how that first glorious and merciful promise of salvation sounds? It sounds like a threat to the enemy, right? He says to the serpent... You will be an enmity, the offspring of the woman, and your offspring will be an enmity one another. You will bruise his heel. He will crush your head. It is when Satan's head is crushed that through that act of judgment, deliverance happens. Or think of the Exodus. When God brings the Israelites out of Egypt, they come through the Red Sea, and Moses decides to write this great song. Is it all just a song of flowers and lilies? God, you saved us. No, it's about God crushing the Egyptians. He crushes his enemies as he delivers his people. It's why I've joked before that if you read the song of Hannah after she finds out she's pregnant, or the song of Mary after she she bears the Christ child, you feel like, good grief. It feels like the hormonal imbalance is really getting going. I mean, they're, he will cast down the proud in their conceit. I mean, how many of you said that when you got the positive pregnancy test? Praise God, he will judge the wicked. <laughs> but the reason they're saying it, and it's not out of place, is because what they're saying is God will save his people through one and the same act as he judges his enemies. It's why when you get to the end of the Bible, through the book of Revelation, they are celebrating the fact that the harlot is judged, the false prophet is judged, the beast is judged, the the, the, the devil himself is judged, thrown into a lake of fire, and they celebrate. Why? It's because when God judges his enemies, when Satan and sin and death are finally dealt with, it will mean the salvation of his people. And this is what David's saying now. God, you will execute justice. Yes, you will judge your enemies, but you will deliver your righteous people. Now, the reality for us is it can be a little hard to to delight in these realities because we know that we deserve what the wicked will face. Ray Orland Jr. has famously said, Hell is filled with people who think they should be in heaven. Heaven is filled with people who know they should be in hell. And that's us, isn't it? So we look at this text a reminder that we will see the face of God though we deserve the very same desert that the wicked will bear. And we're beginning to see the grace and mercy of God who gives to us only what we have in Christ. So how do we persevere? How do we press on in obedient faith when it feels like the world is just crumbling all around us? When it feels like your life is just enveloped in darkness. How'd David do it? I think he gives us the path. We call to mind, we remember, we set our hopes on the fact that God rules and reigns. No matter what's going on in your life right now, the God who loves you and sent his son to redeem you is ruling and reigning right now. He's in the heavens on the throne. Not only that, but he sees and he takes note. He is bottling your tears, writing down your struggles. He has written down your days. There is not a detail of your life he is unaware of. When you want to say to yourself, God, do you know what I'm facing? His answer is absolutely better than you do. And he will execute justice. This life is not all there is. Nor is this world simply this circular pattern. We'll just keep on repeating what's come before. Ultimately, Jesus Christ will return to judge the wicked and save those who have been credited with His righteousness through His Son. One day, the books will be balanced. What I find so fascinating about this psalm, and I think it's key to this answer, how do we walk in obedient faith, is that if you look at what David's friends say, all they're looking at is what they see. David flee. For behold, look, see, the wicked are doing this. Here's what they've done. Here's what they're planning. Look at the the foundations are being destroyed. It's as if there's, there's no security in this life. They're pointing at all the things that their eyes can see. And notice what David does. Never once does he make reference to being in any way affected by what he sees he simply speaks of the Lord. The Lord in His temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. The Lord test. He's going to judge the wicked, rain coals on them. He is righteous. He loves upright deeds. The upright shall behold His face. I think this is the key. Instead of merely fixing our eyes on what we can see around us, things that are transient, things that are passing, We fix our eyes on what we cannot see, things that are eternal, reminding ourselves of who our God is. And it could be simply a general statement, we fix our eyes on the Lord, but it's much more than that as we're going to remember as we come to the table this morning. Because every Sunday, it's an opportunity for us to remember that as we fix our eyes on the Lord, we're fixing our eyes on the one who has already met our greatest need. Jesus Christ lived for us, died for us, and was raised for us. And so this morning, if you're not a believer, then you're among that group right now that will, on the day of judgment, face His wrath. In the early chapters of Revelation, as the text goes on after chapter 6 and speaks of the those who do not know Christ bearing His judgment. It says they will be tormented day and night without rest. So my question is this. If you're not a believer this morning, and you're facing the wrath of God, right now it's bearing down on you, waiting for the day of judgment. The language of Romans 2 is you're storing up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath. If you're there this morning, here's my question for you. Why would you die in your sins and face the furious, merciless wrath of God when you don't have to? And here's why you don't have to. If you'll repent of your sins and place your faith in the one, the Lamb of God who lived, died, For our sins was raised from the dead on the third day. If you place your faith in Him, then your sins have been paid for at the cross. If you place your faith in Him, then His perfect righteousness is credited to your account so that you can stand on the day of judgment and be received into His kingdom. If you place your faith in Christ, then even if we die, death will not be our last word. We'll be raised from our graves to dwell with the Lord forever. And the call to you is to turn from your sins, turn from resting in yourself, trusting in yourself, and look to Christ as your only and sufficient hope. If you would like to talk to me, or the person sitting next to you after the service, I'm certain they would love to talk to you. I know I would love to talk to you. And I'm going to plead with you this morning, if you're not a believer, to place your faith in Christ and then make that public in being baptized. But if you are a believer you've placed your faith in Christ, you've professed your faith publicly in baptism, then I'm going to invite you to come to the table this morning. And as we come to the table, it will be our opportunity to to visibly proclaim to one another that we have heard the call of Christ's word to walk in enduring, obedient faith. And by His grace, our answer is yes, we will follow Him. So here's how we're going to come to the table this morning. These trays are filled with stacks of cups, two stacks, uh, one one stack of two cups together. The bottom one has bread, the top one has juice. What we're going to do is we're going to allow the first row to come, and they'll come from the outside, and they'll walk around, and we'll have two of the pastors here, and we'll hold out the tray, and you'll take one stack of two cups, and you'll go back into your row, into your seat from the inside, and the second row will follow, and the third will follow, and the fourth, and so on and so forth, all exiting from the outside and then entering back into your row on the inside sort of become a smooth line. If you're in the balcony, if you'll come to my left. And if you're in the back, if you'll just judge which line is shorter and kind of even them out and come. If you're to my left over here in the overflow area, uh, Tom is going to come over there, and he's, there are a couple of trays over there. He's going to hold one. And if you're on the front row here, you can just exit around and take and then come back around and enter back into your row, and, and Tom will serve you there. And as we do that, we're going to sing. We're going to sing and remember that all our ways are known to him. And then as we're seated, we're then going to eat together, and we're then going to drink together, remembering that this call to walk in enduring obedient faith is not a call that we hear alone. It's a call that we have heard and we receive as a body. So let's take a moment of silence this morning as the ushers come forward, as the musicians get in place, and then we'll come to the table at that time. Let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table.